This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Hi, I'm Chris Gordon, pastor of the Escondido United Reformed Church, host of Abounding Grace Radio, and sometime adjunct professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. I'm sitting in Scott's chair for this episode. He'll join us in a moment. By the early 17th century at the Synod of Dort in 1618-19, when the Reformed churches sent delegates from the British Isles, the German Palatinate, and the Dutch provinces to consider and respond to the challenges to Reformed theology, piety, and practice posed by the Remonstrants, the Arminians, they all knew what the adjective Reformed meant. It meant those churches, ministers, and believers who confessed the Word of God in the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. They themselves would formulate and adopt rules or canons to respond to the Arminians, and they would be added to the Catechism and the Confession as official interpretations of God's Word. In the 1640s, just a couple of decades later, in the late 1640s, the Westminster Divines would confess the same faith in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. Today, however, it is not at all unusual to read and hear the adjective Reformed used to describe a wide variety of doctrines, pieties, and practices, some of which contradict the three forms of unity and the Westminster standards as Reformed. It can be very confusing especially for those who are just discovering the Reformed Confession. This is the topic on which Scott Clark has been writing for over a decade, beginning with Recovering the Reformed Confession, Our Theology, Piety, and Practice. Recently, a group of scholars, including Matthew Bingham and Crawford Gribben from the UK and Daryl Hart, Scott Clark, and Chris Coey from the U.S., published a collection of essays to interact with that book and to discuss the question of the definition of the adjective reformed. On Being Reformed, Debates Over Theological Identity, published by Palgrave Macmillan in the United Kingdom. Hi, Scott. Welcome back to Office Hours. Well, it's funny to be in this seat, but um, thank you for having me. Why a book defining Reformed? Doesn't everyone know what that means by now? Can you help us with that? Well, everyone used to know what it meant. And uh, as you said in the introduction, there was a time when if you had said in the 1560s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and through the 17th century, into the 18th century, and well into the 19th century, in fact, for most people, with a few exceptions, most of the time, until just after World War II, Right, So for all that time, from the middle of the 16th century and even a little bit before that, until the middle of the 20th century, everyone knew what Reformed meant. It meant you believed what is confessed in the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Westminster Standards, or confessions and catechisms that are correlated to those uh, documents like the Second Helvetic Confession or the French Confession from 1559, the Scots Confession from 1560, and other related confessions of which there are a great number. And if we read them all together, they all said the same thing. So yeah, everyone knew until essentially after World War II what that meant. But after World War II, there came to be a broader usage of the word reformed, in a sense, broader in that it included people who didn't agree with those confessions, but who identified with aspects of them. And then in a sense, there's also a narrowing that went on. And that narrowing was selective. It began to identify the doctrine of predestination as the thing by which Reformed was defined. 
So that, for example, when I came to seminary in 1984, and when I began to learn Reformed theology beginning in 1980, the message was sometimes communicated that in order to be Reformed, what you needed to believe was the inerrancy of Scripture and divine sovereignty. So, on the one hand, the word had been broadened to include a variety of theologies, pieties, and practices that didn't agree with the confessions of the Reformed churches, and it had also been narrowed to select one or two doctrines out of the whole confession and to use those to effectively identify Reformed. Okay. Well, why does this matter? I mean, shouldn't we just <laughs> rejoice that people are discovering Calvinism and identifying with it? I mean, how far do we take this? Well, it's a good question. It's a fair question. And yeah, we should rejoice that people are discovering aspects of Reformed theology. And I say that with all sincerity. It is very exciting to see people who, you know, not very many years ago, were opposing everything to do with the Reformed and Reformed theology to be embracing aspects of it and to be discovering, you know, things that we hold dear and to be reading the Word of God in a better way, in a way that's more sympathetic with the way we read it and um, embracing, uh, you know, the doctrines of grace, as we say, the idea that God has loved his elect from all eternity and has chosen them in Christ and that salvation is free and gracious and justification is free and gracious in Christ alone through faith alone. So that's all very good news. But what I have been saying for a long time, and I think others have been saying with me, is that this is a starting point. This is not a stopping point. And so we could talk about the foyer of house or a church, or we could talk about an on-ramp. It's a metaphor I've often used. An on-ramp is a wonderful thing, right? One moment you're on a surface street, and the next moment you're on a freeway. But you don't want to park on an on-ramp because <laughs> you will get run over. I mean, it depends on where you are, but generally it's a bad thing. It's not a place you want to hang out, and the foyer is no place to hang out. You want to come into the house. It's one thing to be in a transitional phase. It's another thing to make that transitional phase permanent. And so that's been part of my case is to say, look, we have a whole lot of things that we confess in the Reformed faith. And it's a wonderful confession. It's a rich confession. I think the greatest virtue of it is, by my lights, is that it's biblical. At the end of the day, we confess what we confess because we believe that this is what the Word of God says. And we want people everywhere, Christians everywhere, we want non-Christians to come to faith and embrace Christ and embrace the full teaching, the warp and the woof, the breadth, the depth, the richness of all that God's Word says. And we think that the Reformed confessions capture that in a way, testify to that, witness to that, and we want people to embrace all of that with us. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I think that's helpful. It's absolutely important. I mean, as a pastor, I find it really frustrating that people use the designation Reformed and make it mean about anything they want to make it mean, absent from its uh, historical and confessional history. Well, it does have a meaning. Yeah. You know, people say to me, well, the meanings of words change. Right. And that's true. Um, but it's also true that the meanings of words can remain fixed or relatively stable. And so one of the images I've used is a house. If we had moved out of the Reformed house and nobody was living there and people, you know, came in and rehabilitated it, you moved in and, you know, they might have a claim to it, but we still live here, right? This is still a living confession. And so the word still means something to us. And it says something about who we are, what we are, what we believe, why we believe it. And I think still, without being narrow, without being bigoted, 
uh, I think it's worth contesting the attempted redefinition of the word. And so I'm going to say to the folks who, um, you know, wanting to move into the house, as I said to my children, this is my house, right? And we live here. You're welcome to live here with us. But here are the conditions under which you can live here. Right. So some of this comes down to how our Baptist friends and we are going to relate. We should be friendly. We should be gracious. We should be kind. But my Baptist friends won't let me call myself a Baptist. I've asked them, look, I believe that people who are hitherto unbaptized, who come to new life and true faith, should be baptized. You've baptized adult converts. I've seen you do it. So we practice that. And that's something that Baptists do. So are we not Baptists in some sense? Well, no, not in any meaningful sense. So evidently, not everything is fluid and flexible, right? Right. I think that's an important point. An Episcopalian believes in a church that's organized around a non-Episcopal ecclesiastical structure. You have a regional manager, in a sense, of the church. He's a bishop. A Roman Catholic submits to the pope, or at least they're supposed to, right? Submit to the pope and to the magisterium and to the unwritten tradition, to the catechism and so forth of the Roman communion, You can't say, well, I reject the papacy, I reject the magisterium, I reject the unwritten tradition, I reject the seven sacraments, but I'm a Roman Catholic. No, (laughs) whatever you are, you're not a Roman Catholic. So words have meaning. This is interesting, at least pastorally. I notice in our day, many churches want to hide their names. So they change the name on the side and they don't want to tell people on the sign and they don't want to tell people who they are, right? So, you know, you used to have the old Pentecostal churches that would say they're Pentecostal. And today it says, you know, City Bible Church or whatever. But you're saying here we're dealing with the problem of people who want to use the designation and the term and the name reformed, but in ways that are somewhat dishonest from its historical understanding. Well, disconnected, I think. And in this book, the issues are several. A couple of the authors, Chris Coey and Crawford Gribben, my friends, and it was Crawford whose idea, I think it was, to do this book. At least it was Crawford who approached me and approached Daryl to participate in this collaborative enterprise. So Chris and Crawford are arguing that things have changed enough in the Reformed world since the classical period to which I appeal in the book Recovering the Reformed Confession. And that's the title of their essay is History at identity, politics, and the, quote, recovery of the Reformed Confession. So that's a direct allusion to the book Recovering the Reformed Confession, available through the bookstore (laughs) at Westminster Seminary, California. So that's how this book came about? Yeah. So a substantial portion of this book is a reply, in a sense, and an investigation and a dialogue about recovering the Reformed Confession. So they argue in their essay, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but just to try to summarize it shortly, and I think the listener should read it for himself. But... um, They argue that enough has changed since then that we really can't talk meaningfully about recovering a Reformed confession because, for example, one of their major arguments is we don't have a state church anymore. And the Reformation occurred in the context of a state church. And since we no longer, particularly in the United States, confess a state church and we revised our confessions in that regard, Belgic Confession Article 36 in 1789, the American Presbyterians revised the Westminster Confession of Faith. So sometimes they simply say the Confession of Faith and they no longer, most of them, confess a state church that this is such a significant revision that you really can't talk about reformed anymore. So I try to respond to that in my essay. Matthew Bingham argues in his essay, Reformed Baptist, in quotations there, anachronistic, oxymoron, or useful signpost. And he argues, in a sense, the opposite case, that there's enough diversity inherent in the Reformed movement from the beginning 
that those who identify as Reformed Baptist, which is a relatively modern nomenclature, right? Originally, they called themselves, and this is one of my arguments, they called themselves particular Baptists because they recognized from the very beginning that they weren't actually Reformed, that they saw themselves already in the 1640s that there were significant differences between their own theology, however much they identified with the Reformed Reformation, and they did intentionally identify with it, but they also recognized there were significant differences. But at any rate, Matthew argues that there's enough diversity from the very beginning of the movement that the Reformed Baptist can identify with it and do so properly. It's that it's not an anachronistic oxymoron. And then uh, Daryl Hart in his essay, the title of which is The Baptists Are Different, argues a historical case, not just a theological case, but a historical case and also surveys some of the literature in this question, arguing that in a sense the opposite case, that yeah, however much we appreciate the Baptist identification with the Reformed Reformation, that historically the differences are significant enough that they really are inherently different. And then finally, my uh, contribution is an essay, the title of which is A House of Cards, question mark, a response to Bingham, Gribben, and Coey, in which I then tried to respond to Matthew's case that uh, there's enough diversity to talk meaningfully about Reformed Baptists. And then uh, by House of Cards, I'm referring to Crawford and Chris's argument that uh, there really is no such thing as Reformed anymore. It's a House of Cards. It's all come tumbling down. It's not a meaningful thing to talk about anymore. So, you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three-bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they've actually afforded. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So the question that's probably most important, especially for, you know, a poor pastor who spends all his lunch money on books, is why why is this as book... much money as his wife will let him spend? <laughs> that's right. that, that sounds it sounds like a voice of experience over there. Is that what you're telling me? Of course. Why is this book so expensive? Why are academic books like this, you know, I mean this costs somebody like me, a little bit of money. So why? Yeah, it's a fair question. It's a long answer, the short version of which is this. These kinds of books are hard to get published. If we had gathered this together and pitched this to popular Christian publishers who could afford to print enough copies to make it marketable, they would have changed it sufficiently such that we couldn't do what we were going to do. So in order to do what we wanted to do, we had to do it in a format that would allow us to write the way we wanted to write, to address the issues the way we wanted to address them. So that's, in a sense, how academic books come about. So the market for these things is pretty small. And the publishers that take them on, in this case, a UK publisher, Macmillan, 
under the imprint of Palgrave Pivot, they are able to take this on because they are able to charge a lot of money for these things and print a relatively small number of copies. So this is a book that's designed to be bought by libraries, academic libraries, maybe a really uh, ambitious church library or something. But um, otherwise, they're not really intended to be affordable to individuals because otherwise they just wouldn't ever come into print. So if people want these things to be affordable, they need to pony up and uh, make it possible. Honestly, the economics of this is just difficult, but we need some other way of getting these things into print. It would have been nice to make this affordable. But sadly, that's just not how it works. Well, since I did the interview, I expect a complimentary copy. So <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> I know a guy who knows a guy. All right. You already touched on a little bit some of the views represented. Maybe you could go a little bit more into the particular different viewpoints in the book and the contributors. Sure. Crawford Gribben is professor of early modern British history at Queen's University in Belfast in the UK, and he's author of a number of books, most recently John Owen and English Puritanism, Experiences of Defeat, and also God's Irishman, Theological Debates in Cromwellian Ireland in 2007. Chris Coey took his PhD from Trinity College Dublin in the south of Ireland, and he is author of The Tale of Two Adams, is an active podcaster and contributor to Bunyan Studies and uh, Prophecy and Eschatology in the Transatlantic World, 1500 to 1800, and that was published in 2016. Matthew Bingham teaches systematic theology and historical theology at Oak Hill College in London in the UK, and he is publishing shortly here Orthodox Radicals, Baptist Identity in the English Revolution, and that will be coming out through Oxford University Press. Daryl Hart is Distinguished Visiting Professor of History at Hillsdale College in Michigan and author of many, many books, including Calvinism and History 2013, From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin, Evangelicals and the Betrayal of American Conservatism, Defending the Faith, J. Gresham Machen in the Crisis of Conservative Protestantism in Modern America, and maybe one of the most important books I have read, and the title of which is The Lost Soul of American Protestantism. Hardly recommend that to everyone. I think all Reformed people should read that book. That had a big effect on me. So these are the contributors to the volume, and we've surveyed some of the major arguments of the book. For example, Chris and Crawford specifically engage Clark and Hart in their chapter, and they explore, as they say, the various ways in which some of the major Reformed confessions have changed over time. And for them, these changes are so significant, as I say, that it's very difficult to talk about the Reformed as if it's one thing anymore. And they ask whether it's possible for contemporary Protestants to be Reformed in the senses in which the 16th and 17th century ecclesiastical assemblies who drafted these documents would recognize. And my argument that I made in recovering the Reformed Confession and that I restate here and defend in this volume is that, yes, certainly we would have to have a conversation with the framers of the Westminster Confession, the framers of the Belgic and the Heidelberg and the Cans of Dort as to why we no longer have state churches. But they would recognize the rest of our confession. They would see that we have not changed our Christology We've not changed our doctrine of God. We haven't changed. Indeed, we've in some ways strengthened our doctrine of Scripture. Our doctrine of salvation is the same. Our eschatology is the same. Our ecclesiology, in as much as uh, 
you know, we still have the same ecclesiology except for a state church. So it really would come down to, is the state church so of the essence of Reformed theology, piety, and practice that without it, you don't have it? And my argument is no, it really isn't. I think they might disagree with our free church situation or our decision to break with the state church in the 18th century. But I think if we could talk to them about the history that transpired between the 16th century and the 18th century, that they would understand. Bingham points to the diversity within the Reformed tradition, and from that he wants to revise the definition of Reformed. There was diversity even in the 16th and 17th centuries, so why is he wrong? Well, there was, but there was also a core. You know, these arguments about the one and the many are always challenging, aren't they? Because you have to have both. And sometimes these arguments from diversity give the impression that there was no core. There was no agreed body of truths or that there was no agreed piety or that there was no agreed practice. And as I argued in Recovering and as I argue again in this volume, there certainly was. And the prima facie evidence for that is all of the Reformed confessions. For example, if you look at the four-volume collection of confessions edited by Jim Dennison and published by Reformation Heritage Press, it's an extensive, expansive collection. In fact, I might argue it's a little too inclusive. There are some documents, I think, that don't belong there properly. But certainly, it's a very good, very representative example of what the Reformed were confessing in the 16th and 17th centuries. And the unity Despite the geographic differences, despite the linguistic differences, the cultural differences, the political differences, the unity of those confessions is really quite remarkable. So, for example, when the Lutherans published the Book of Concord in 1580, one of the things they said to the Reformed is, look, we have a unified confession, although the Book of Concord is a pretty complicated document or a set of documents if you look at it, but okay, fair enough, there's a certain degree of unity there. And they said to the Reformed, you don't have that. And you guys have no single confession. And so some of the Reformed, including Theodore Beza, put together a harmony of confessions. And in that harmony, they set out to show that, in fact, despite the linguistic, geographical diversity, the diversity in polities in some cases, that there was an underlying substantial unity. And I think they showed that. So that there was a consciousness in the 17th century and in the 16th century that there was a unified Reformed faith. This is why we were able to bring people from the Palatinate and would have brought people from France had the French authorities, the French crown allowed that to happen. We brought people from the Netherlands and elsewhere in the British Isles. They were all able to gather to confront the Arminian threat at the Synod of Dort. If there's no unity, how are they able to do that? Well, they were able to do that. And when the Westminster Standards were published, people all over Europe saw translations of those, those who didn't read English, and they recognized this as another expression of the same faith that we all shared. So that the experience of the Reformed in the 16th and 17th centuries was of a certain degree of diversity. And there was probably more diversity in some ways in the 17th century than there had been in the 16th century, but not such that there wasn't still a core and a fairly extensive core of agreed doctrines, agreed piety, a way of worshiping and addressing God and a way of practicing that is working out the Christian faith. And I think that's just manifestly clear that there was such a thing. So that would be the core of my response, that uh, the evidence that there is a Reformed faith is very, very strong. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Daryl Hart argues that there are strong historical reasons for seeing a clear difference between Baptists and the Reformed. He also raises the really interesting question of who gets to define a word like reform, scholars or synods, individuals or the church. So how would you answer that? 
I think that's a really interesting question, and it's a vital question in a sense. And so I started my essay by talking about identity politics. We live in this very weird and wonderful time in which, and you and I have talked about this some, where a person can approach you on the street and they look like they belong to one sex, but they will tell you that they actually belong to another gender. And we call that identity politics. Somebody says, I identify as X. A neighbor boy back home said to my mother-in-law, they used to call him one thing and now he calls himself Emily. So he identifies as Emily. Is that the way reality works? Can individuals just self-identify and make that stick? Or is there such a thing as an objective reality? And I'm a big fan of objective reality. (laughs) So I always talk to the students about the clock tower, this beautiful clock tower on campus. And uh, it is a thought experiment. I've always tried to make that clear. This is an experiment. Please don't try this at home. But were you to climb to the top of the or anyone, someone to climb to the top of the clock tower. Again, don't do this. This is just a thought experiment. Were one to jump off, certain things would take place necessarily because that's the nature of reality. There's a fixed objective reality. And a person could say, I identify as someone who can fly. But if you leave the top of the clock tower, you know, without a parachute, it's not going to go well. And even with a parachute, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't go well because <laughs> you wouldn't have room to open it. So I think the same thing is roughly true of the Reformed Confession. So who gets to define this? Can individuals say, be they scholars or laity, can they just simply say, I identify as Reformed, therefore I am Reformed? Then does that agree with the nature of reality? Does it agree with history? Or is this a form of identity politics? And I'm suggesting that it is a form of identity politics. And so I don't think on that ground it works. And then I think Daryl's point is well taken, that in fact, the definition of reformed isn't something that a bunch of individuals as private persons have formulated, but it is a confession of ecclesiastical bodies. And that's really important. So the Synod of Dort wasn't a bunch of theologians gathering together. They were delegates from churches. And they came as delegates from churches, and they were solving or wrestling with ecclesiastical problems. And the same thing is true of the French Reformed Synod that adopted the French Confession. The same is true of the Westminster Assembly. Now, I didn't get the kind of purchase in the British Isles that one would have liked, but the uh, Westminster Confession was fundamentally an ecclesiastical document. And so I think as a matter of history, as I think Daryl says, that we have to say that the definition of Reformed isn't a private thing. It isn't a political act. It's not endlessly plastic, but that it has a grounding in objective history. And it is the expression of an ecclesiastical identity, not just a private personal identity. Anyone who has spent some time in New Testament Greek and been taught well knows about the etymological fallacy, or at least they should. (laughs) Um, In other words, word like dynamis. You know, people would say, well, that means dynamite or nice means stupid, even though the words are etymologically related. You are insisting an older definition of reformed. Aren't you guilty of the etymological fallacy? Aren't you standing in the way of progress? <laughs> yeah. Am I standing athwart progress and saying stop? Well, there's a difference between progress and abuse. And so I'm arguing that this isn't progress. If a word means A or X, and it meant X in the 16th century, the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th century, and halfway through the 20th century, and only very recently on a popular level, it's really only very recently that a large number of people 
people in the young, restless, and reform movement have begun appropriating this word. Is it the case that because a large number of people have appropriated an adjective, that therefore they get to redefine it? And I don't think that constitutes progress, or I don't think I'm committing the etymological fallacy by saying, oh, wait a minute, it meant the same thing for 450 years. And now, last week, you're telling me that the sense of it changed. On what basis? Especially since, as I say, we're still using it and confessing it and meaning by it substantially what we meant by it 450 years ago. Is that really an etymological fallacy? No. I mean, what we're really talking about here is the question whether if a sufficient number of people at the same time assert something, that makes it true. So in a sense, I think it's a really interesting question because it's not even about politics or who's in charge. It's, again, uh, how does the world work and what is the nature of truth in a sense? And is there such a thing as objective reality? And there is a logical fallacy that says that if enough people say something, that it must be true. And of course, that's not true. You can show that in a variety of cases, many, many cases where a great number of people have believed things to be true that aren't true. Here's an interesting example. There are apparently a large number of people now who think and who are saying in public that the earth is flat. Have you heard this? Yes. Have you ever talked to anybody about this? Yes. Tell me about it. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about it. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it is. But you can affirm with me that there is such a thing. Yes. Oh, yeah. And that's it's a, a movement in it's popular culture. It's a movement culture. that has come and it's shocking. And people are absolutely asserting, you know, with great vigor that the earth is genuinely flat. It's hard to even engage. Because it's so ridiculous. And yet, there it is. Now, let's say that this movement catches on, and it's not just a passing fad, but that it becomes a lasting movement with a great number of adherents. And potentially, okay, how many people are actually arguing over the definition of reformed? Probably a relatively small number of people, right, if we consider the universe of possible people. I imagine there are already more people who believe that the earth is flat than who think that the word reformed can be redefined, right? And if that's the case, does that mean that it's okay to say that the world is flat? No. Why? Because there is objective. Are you standing in the way of progress, Chris Gordon? <laughs> if all these people think that the world is flat, who are you to say that it isn't flat? Who's progress? <laughs> well, okay, exactly. Who's progress? That's a fair question. And so I think that's what we're facing here is that just because a large number of people assert that something is so doesn't mean that it's so because the truth is the truth. And it's true whether somebody wants to affirm it as true or not. So this really gets to the question of whether there's such a thing as objective truth. Well, I actually will now go out and buy the book, Scott. You've convinced me. You've convinced me that I need to read this book. <laughs> it's been great to, uh, to sit in your chair for this episode. So when will this book be available? It is out now as you hear this episode. Oh, it's out. Okay. Yeah, as you hear the episode, as you and I are sitting here talking, it's not out yet. But when the listener hears this episode, <laughs> okay. it will be out. Okay. On being reformed. Debates Over a Theological Identity, published by Palgrave Macmillan in the United Kingdom. And it's available on Amazon everywhere, both in the UK and in the US. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.